0: there is nothing in me but ungodliness. Here is a mystery. Here the wise men of the world are lost, are taken in their own craftiness. This to learn that the world cannot comprehend. This is a word of reconciliation which we preach. This is a foundation which never can be moved. By faith we are built upon this foundation. And this faith is also the gift of God. It is his free gift, which he now and ever giveth to everyone that is willing to receive it. And when they have received this gift of God, then their hearts will melt for sorrow that they have offended him. But this gift of God lives in the heart, not in the head. The faith of the head, learned from men's or books, if alone, is nothing worth. It brings neither remission of sins nor peace with God. Labor then to believe with your whole heart. So shall you have redemption through the blood of Christ. So shall you be cleansed from all sin. So shall you go on from strength to strength, being renewed day by day in righteousness and in all true holiness. End quote. Mr. Wesley's still preaching, many wounded in spirit at Newgate, warning against relying on bodily effects, nature of the doctrines preached, prayer heard, gross sinners reformed, ignorance in some part of Wales, letter of approbation from one formerly prejudiced. Thursday, March 29. I left London and in the evening expounded to a small company at Stoke Saturday, March 31st. In the evening I reached Bristol, and met with Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarce reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields, of which he set me an example on Sunday. Having been all my life, till very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order, that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been in a church. Bristol, April 1st. In the evening, Mr. Whitfield being gone, I began expounding our Lord's sermon on the mount one pretty remarkable precedent of field preaching. I suppose there were churches at that time also, to a little society which was accustomed to meet once or twice a week in Nicholas Street. Monday the 2nd. At four in the afternoon I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in the ground adjoining to the city, to about three thousand people. The scripture on which I spoke was this. Is it possible anyone should be ignorant that is fulfilled in every true minister of Christ the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Tuesday, the 17th At five in the afternoon I was in a little society in back lane. The room in which we were was propped beneath, but the weight of people made the floor give way, so that in the beginning of the expounding the post which propped it fell down with a great noise, but the floor sunk no further, so that after a little surprise at first they quietly attended to the things that were spoken. This I went to Baldwin Street, and expounded as it came in course the fourth chapter of the Acts, We then called upon God to confirm His word. Immediately one that stood by, to our no small surprise, cried aloud with an utmost vehemence, even as in the agonies of death. But we continued in prayer till a new song was put in her mouth, a thanksgiving unto our God. Soon after, two other persons well known in this place, as laboring to live in all good conscience towards all men, were seized with strong pain and constrained to roar for the disquietness of their heart. But it was not long before they likewise burst forth into praise to God their Savior. The last who called upon God as out of the belly of hell was I, E, a stranger in Bristol. And in a short space he also was overwhelmed with joy and love, knowing that God had healed his backslidings. Saturday the 21st At Weaver's Hall, a young man was suddenly seized with a violent trembling all over, and in a few minutes the sorrows of his heart being enlarged sunk down to the ground. But we ceased not calling upon God till He raised Him up full of peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Thursday, the 25th. While I was preaching at Newgate on these words, He that believeth hath everlasting life... I was insensibly led, without any previous design, to declare strongly and explicitly that God willeth all men to be thus saved, and to pray that, if this were not the truth of God, he would not suffer the blind to go out of the way, but if it were, he would bear witness to his word. Immediately one and another and another sunk to the earth. They dropped on every side as the thunder struck. One of them cried aloud, We besought God in her behalf, and he turned her heaviness into joy." The second being in the same agony, we called upon God for her also, and He spoke peace unto her soul. In the evening I was again pressed in spirit to declare that Christ gave Himself a ransom for all. And almost before we called upon Him to set to His seal, He answered, One was so wounded by the sword of the Spirit that you would have imagined she could not live a moment. But immediately His abundant kindness was shown, and she loudly sang of His righteousness. Monday the 29th We understood that many were offended at the cries of those on whom the power of God came, among whom was a physician who was much afraid there might be fraud or imposture in the case. Today, one whom he had known many years was the first, while I was preaching at Newgate, who broke out into strong cries and tears. He could hardly believe his own eyes and ears. He went and stood close to her and observed every symptom until great drops of sweat ran down her face and all her bones shook. He then knew not what to think, being clearly convinced it was not fraud nor yet any natural disorder. But when both her soul and body were healed, in a moment he acknowledged the finger of God. Tuesday, May 1st, many were offended again, and indeed much more than before, for at Baldwin Street my voice could scarce be heard amidst the groanings of some and the cries of others, calling aloud to him that is mighty to save. I desired all that were sincere of heart to beseech with me the Prince exalted for us that he would proclaim deliverance to the captives. And he soon showed that he had heard our voice. Many of those who had been long in darkness saw the dawn of a great light. And ten persons I afterwards found and began to say in faith, My Lord and my God. Tuesday, the 15th. As I was expounding in the back lane on the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, many who had been before righteous in their own eyes abhorred themselves as in dust and ashes. But two, who seemed to be more deeply convinced than the rest, did not long sorrow as men without hope, but found in that hour that they had an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, as did three others at Gloucester Lane the evening before, and three at Baldwin Street this evening. About ten, two who, after having seen great light, had again falsely reasoned themselves into darkness, came to us heavy laden, We cried to God, and they were again filled with peace and joy in believing, Wednesday the 16th. While I was declaring at Baptist Mills, he was wounded for our transgressions, a middle-aged man began violently beating his breast and crying to him by whose stripes we are healed. During our prayer, God put a new song in his mouth. Some mocked, others owned the hand of God, particularly a woman of Baptist Mills, who was now convinced of her own want of an advocate with God, and went home full of anguish, but was in a few hours filled with joy, knowing he had blotted out all her transgressions. During this whole time, I was almost continually asked, either by those who purposely came to Bristol, to inquire concerning this strange work, or by my old or new correspondence, how can these things be? And innumerable cautions were given me, generally grounded on gross misrepresentations of things, not to regard visions or dreams or to fancy people had remission of sins because of their cries or tears or bare outward professions. To one who had many times wrote to me on this head, my answer was, in part, as follows, quote, the question between us turns chiefly, if not wholly, on manner of fact. You deny that God does now work these effects, at least that He works them in this manner. I affirm both, because I have heard these things with my own ears and seen them with my eyes. I have seen, as far as a thing of this kind can be seen, very many persons changed in a moment from the spirit of fear, horror to spirit, to the spirit of love, joy, and peace, and from sinful desire, till then reigning over them, to a pure design of doing the will of God. These are matters of fact, whereof I have been, and almost daily am, an eye or ear witness. What I have to say, touching visions or dreams, is this. I know several persons in whom this great change was wrought, in a dream or during a strong representation to the eye of their mind, of Christ either on the cross or in glory. This is the fact. Let any judge of it as they please. And that such a change was then wrought appears, not from their shedding tears only, or falling into fits, or crying out. These are not the fruits as you seem to suppose, whereby I judge, but from the whole tenor of their life, until then many ways wicked, from that time holy, just, and good. I will show you him that was a lion until then, and is now a lamb, him that was a drunkard, and is now exemplary sober,
1: the whoremonger
0: that was, who now abhors the very garment spotted by the flesh, if it be not so, I am found a false witness before God. As to the effects on their bodies, which accompanied the concern that was upon their minds, many ascribed these to other causes, saying, The people fainted away only because of the heat and closeness of the rooms, and others were sure it was all a cheat. They might help it if they would. Else why were these things only in their private societies? Why were they not done in the face of the sun? Tuesday, Monday the 21st, this objection was removed. For while I was enforcing these words, Be still and know that I am God, he began to make bare his arm, not in a close room, neither in private, but in the open air, and before more than two thousand witnesses. One and another and another was struck to the earth, exceedingly trembling at the presence of his power. Others cried with a loud and bitter cry, What must we do to be saved? And in less than an hour, seven persons wholly unknown to me, till that time were rejoicing and singing, and with all their might, giving thanks to the God of their salvation. In the evening I was interrupted at Nicholas Street, almost as soon as I began to speak, by the cries of one who was pricked at the heart and strongly groaned for pardon and peace. Yet I went on to declare what God had already done and proof of that important truth, that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Another person dropped down close to me who was the strongest asserter of the contrary doctrine. While he stood astonished at the sight, a little boy near him was seized in the same manner. A young man who stood behind fixed his eyes on him and sunk down himself as one dead. Meanwhile, many others began to cry out to the Savior, and he would come and help them. We continued in prayer, and before ten the greater part found rest to their souls. I was called from supper to one who, filling in herself such a conviction as she had never had known before, had run out of the society in all haste that she might not expose herself. But the hand of God followed her still, so that after going a few steps she was forced to be carried home when she was there, grew worse and worse. She was in a violent agony when we came. We called upon God, and her soul found rest. About twelve, I was greatly importuned to go and visit one person more. She had only one struggle after I came, and was then filled with peace and joy. I think twenty-nine in all had their heaviness turned into joy this day. Monday the 28th, I began preaching at Weaver's Hall at eleven in the forenoon, where two persons were enabled to cry out in faith, My Lord and my God! as were seven during the sermon in the afternoon, before several thousand witnesses, and ten in the evening at Baldwin Street, of whom two were children. Tuesday, the 29th. I was unknowingly engaged in conversation with a famous infidel, a confirmer of the unfaithful in these parts. He appeared a little surprised and said he would pray to God to show him the true way of worshipping him. Friday, June 22nd. I called on one who did run well till he was hindered by some of those called French prophets, Woe unto the prophets, saith the Lord, who prophesy in my name, and I have not sent them. At Weaver's Hall I endeavored to point them out, and earnestly exhorted all that followed after holiness to avoid as fire all who do not speak according to the law and the testimony. In the afternoons I preached at the fish ponds, but had no life or spirit in me, and was much in doubt whether God would not lay me aside and send other laborers into His harvest. I came to the society full of the thought, And began in such weakness to explain, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. I told them, they were not to judge of the spirit, whereby anyone spoke, either by appearances or by common report, or by their own inward feelings, no, nor by any dreams, visions, or revelations supposed to be made to their souls, any more than by their tears or any involuntary effects wrought upon their bodies. I warned them all these were in themselves of a doubtful, disputable nature. They might be from God, and they might not, and were therefore not simply to be relied on, any more than simply to be condemned, but to be tried by a further rule, to be brought to the only certain test, the law and the testimony." While I was speaking, one before me dropped down and dead, and presently a second and a third. Five others sunk down in half an hour, most of whom were in violent agonies. The pains as of hell came about them. The snares of death overtook them. In their trouble we called upon the Lord, and He gave us an answer of peace. One indeed continued an hour in strong pain, and one or two more for three days. But the rest were greatly comforted in that hour and went away rejoicing and praising God. Saturday the 23rd. I spoke severally with those who had been so troubled the night before. Some of them, I found, were only convinced of sin. Others have indeed found rest to their souls. This evening another was seized with strong pains, but in a short time her soul was also delivered. Saturday the 30th. At Weaver's Hall, seven or eight persons were constrained to roar aloud while the sword of the Spirit was dividing asunder their souls and spirits and joints and marrow. But they were all relieved upon prayer and saying praises unto our God and unto the Lamb that liveth forever and ever. I gave a particular account from time to time of the manner wherein God here carried on His work to those whom I believed to desire the increase of His kingdom, with whom I had an opportunity of corresponding. Part of the answer which I received sometime after from one of these I cannot but here subjoin, quote, I desire to bless the Lord for the good and great news your letter bears about the Lord's turning many souls from darkness to light and from the power of Satan and the God, and that such a great and effectual door is opened among you as many adversaries cannot shut. O may he that hath the keys of the house of David, that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth, set the door of faith more and more open among you until his house be filled, until he gather together the outcasts of Israel." may that prayer for the adversaries be heard, fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. As to the outward manner you speak of, wherein most of them were affected, who were cut to the heart by the sword of the Spirit, no wonder that this was at first surprising to you, since they are indeed so very rare that have been thus pricked and wounded. Yet some of the instances you give seem to be exemplified in the outward manner wherein Paul and the jailer were at first affected, as also Peter's hearers in Acts 2. The last instance you gave of some struggling as in the agonies of death, and in such a manner is that four or five strong men can hardly restrain a weak woman from hurting herself or others, this is to me somewhat more inexplicable. If it do not resemble the child spoke of in Mark 9, verse 26, and Luke 9, verse 42, of whom it is said that while he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. Or what influence sudden and sharp awakenings may have upon the body, I pretend not to explain. But I make no question, Satan, so far as he gets power, may exert himself on such occasions, partly to hinder the good work in the persons who are thus touched with the sharp arrows of conviction, and partly to disparage the work of God, as if it tended to lead people to distraction. However, the merciful issue of these conflicts in the conversion of the people thus affected is the main thing. When they are brought by the saving arm of God to receive Christ Jesus, to have joy and peace in believing, and then to walk in Him and give evidence that the work is a saving work at length, whether more quickly or gradually accomplished, there is greater manner of praise. All the outward appearances of people being affected amongst us may be reduced to these two sorts. One is hearing with a close, silent attention with gravity and greediness, discovered by fixed looks, weeping eyes, and sorrowful or joyful countenances. Another sort is... When they lift up their voice aloud, some more depressively and others more highly, and at times a whole multitude in a flood of tears, all as it were crying out at once, until the voice be ready to drown the ministers, that he can scarce be heard for the weeping noise that surrounds him. The influence on some of these, like a land flood, dries up, we hear of no change wrought but in others it appears in the fruits of righteousness and a tract of a holy conversation. May the Lord strengthen you to go on in His work and in praying for the coming of His kingdom with you and us. And I hope you shall not be forgotten among us in our joint applications to the throne of grace. I am, Reverend, dear sir, your very affectionate brother and servant in Christ, Ralph Erskine. Sunday, July 1st, at Hanham and at Rose Green. I explained the latter part of the 7th of Luke, that verse especially, when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. A young woman sunk down at Rose Green in a violent agony, both of body and mind, as did five or six persons in the evening at the new room, at whose cries many were greatly offended. The same offense was given in the morning by one at Weaver's Hall and by eight or nine others at Gloucester Lane in the evening. The first that was deeply touched was L.W., whose mother had been not a little displeased a day or two before, when she was told how her daughter had exposed herself before all the congregation. The mother herself was the next who dropped down, but went home with her daughter full of joy, as did most of those that had been in pain. Saturday, the 7th, I had an opportunity to talk with Mr. Whitfield of those outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God i found his objections were chiefly grounded on gross me- misrepresentations of matter of fact but the next day he had an opportunity of informing himself better for no sooner had he begun in the application of his sermon to invite all sinners to believe in christ than four persons sunk down close to him almost in the same moment one of them lay without either sense or motion a second trembled exceedingly the third had strong convulsions all over his body but made no noise unless by groans the fourth, equally convulsed, called upon God with strong cries and tears. From this time I trust we shall all suffer God to carry on His own work in the way that pleaseth Him. Thursday, the 13th, I went to a gentleman who was much troubled with what they call lowness of spirits. Many such I have been with before, but in several of them it was no bodily distemper. They wanted something they knew not what, and were therefore heavy, uneasy, and dissatisfied with everything. The plain truth is, they wanted God, they wanted Christ, they wanted faith, and God convinced them of their want, and in a way their physicians no more understood than themselves. Accordingly, nothing availed to the great physician came, and for, in spite of all natural means, he who made them for himself would not suffer them to rest till they rested in him. Monday, August 27th For two hours I took up my cross, and arguing with a zealous man and laboring to convince him that I was not an enemy to the church of England, he allowed, I taught no other doctrines than those of the church, but could not forgive my teaching them out of the church walls. He allowed too, which none indeed can deny who has either any regard to truth or sense of shame, that by this teaching many souls who till that time were perishing for lack of knowledge have been and are brought from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. But he added, no one can tell what may be hereafter, and therefore I say these things ought not to be suffered. Indeed, the report now current in Bristol was that I was a Papist, if not a Jesuit. Some added that I was born and bred at Rome, which many cordially believed. Oh, when will you understand that the preaching justification by faith alone, the allowing no meritorious cause of justification but the death and the righteousness of Christ, and no conditional or instrumental cause but faith, is overturning Popery from the foundation? When will you understand that the most destructive of all these errors which Rome, the mother of abominations, has brought forth, compared to which transubstantiation and a hundred more are trifles light as there is, that we are justified by works in order to express the same thing as a little more decently by faith and works. Now do I preach this? I did for ten years. I was fundamentally a papist and knew it not. But I do now testify to all, and it is the very point for asserting which I have to this day been called in question, that no good works can be done before justification, none which have not in them the nature of sin. Monday, September 3rd. I talked largely with my mother, who told me that until a short time since she had scarce heard such a thing mentioned as a having forgiveness of sins now or God's spirit bearing witness with our spirit. Much less did she imagine that this was the common privilege of all true believers. Therefore, said she, I never durst ask for it myself, but two or three weeks ago, while my son Hal was pronouncing those words in delivering the cup to me, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, the words struck through my heart, and I knew God for Christ's sake had forgiven me of all my sins. I asked whether her father, Dr. Annesley, had not the same faith, and whether she had not heard him preach it to others. She answered, He added himself and declared a little before his death that for more than forty years he had no darkness, no fear, no doubt at all of his being accepted in the Beloved. But that nevertheless she did not remember to have heard him preach, though not once explicitly upon it, when she supposed he also looked upon it as a peculiar blessing of a few, not as promised to all the people of God. Thursday the 13th A serious clergyman desired to know in what points we differed from the Church of England. I answered, to the best of my knowledge, in none. The doctrines we preach are the doctrines of the Church of England. Indeed, the fundamental doctrines of the Church clearly laid down both in her prayers, articles, and homilies. He asked, in what points, then, do you differ from the other clergy of the Church of England? I answered, in none from that part of the clergy who adhere to the doctrines of the Church, but from that part of the clergy who dissent from the Church, though they own it not. I differ in the points following... 1st. They speak of justification either as the same thing with sanctification or as something consequent upon it. I believe justification to be wholly distinct from sanctification and necessarily antecedent to it. Secondly, They speak of our own holiness or good works as the cause of our justification or that for the sake of which on account of which we are justified before God. I believe neither our own holiness nor good works are any part of the cause of our justification, but that the death and righteousness of Christ are the whole and sole cause of it, or that for the sake of which, on account of which, we are justified before God. Thirdly, they speak of good works as a condition of justification necessarily previous to it. I believe no good work can be previous to justification, nor consequently a condition of it, but that we are justified being until that hour ungodly and therefore incapable of doing any good work, by faith alone, faith without works, faith though producing all yet, including no good work. Fourthly, they speak of sanctification or holiness as if it were an outward thing, as if it consisted chiefly, if not wholly, in these two points. One, the doing no harm. Two, the doing good, as it is called, the use and the means of grace in helping our neighbor. I believe it to be an inward thing, namely the life of God and the soul of man, a participation of the divine nature, the mind that was in Christ, or the renewal of our heart after the image of Him that created us. Lastly, they speak of the new birth as an outward thing, as if it were no more than baptism, or at most a change from outward wickedness to outward goodliness, from vicious to what is called a virtuous life. I believe it to be an inward thing, a change from inward wickedness to inward goodness, an entire change of our inmost nature from the image of the devil, wherein we are born, to the image of God. A change from the love of the creature to the love of the Creator, from earthly and sensual to heavenly and holy affections, and a word, a change from the tempers of the spirit of darkness to those of the angels of God in heaven. Tuesday, the eighteenth, A young woman came to us at Islandton in such an agony as I have seldom seen. Her sorrow and fear were too big for utterance, so that after a few words her strength as well as her heart failing, she sunk down to the ground. Only her sighs and groans showed she was yet alive. We cried unto God in her behalf, we claim the promises made to the weary and heavy laden, and he did not cast out our prayer. At Mr. B's at six, I was enabled earnestly to call all the weary and heavy laden. And at Mr. C's at eight, when many roared aloud, some of whom utterly refused to be comforted until they should fill their souls at rest in the blood of the Lamb, and have his love shed abroad in their hearts. Friday 28th I met with a fresh proof that whatsoever ye shall ask, believe in, ye shall receive. A middle-aged woman desired me to return thanks for her to God, who, as many witnesses then present testified, was a day or two before really distracted, and as such tied down in her bed. But upon prayer made for her, she was instantly relieved and restored to a sound mind. Wednesday, October 10th Finding many to be in heaviness, Whom I had left full of peace and joy, I exhorted them at Baptist Mills to look unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. We poured out our complaint before Him in the evening, and found that He was again with us of a truth. Thursday the 11th. We were comforted by the coming in of one, who was a notorious drunkard and common swearer. But he is washed, and old things are passed away. Such power belongeth unto God." In the evening our Lord rose on many who were wounded, with healing in his wings, and others, who until then were careless and at ease, felt the two-edged sword that cometh out of his mouth. Saturday the 20th I returned to Bristol. I have seen no part of England so pleasant for sixty or seventy miles together as those parts of Wales I have been in. And most of the inhabitants are indeed right for the gospel. I mean, if the expression appears strange, they are earnestly desirous of being instructed in it and as utterly ignorant of it they are as any Creek or Cherokee Indian. I do not mean they are ignorant of the name of Christ. Many of them can say both the Lord's Prayer and the belief, nay, and some all the catechism, but take them out of the road of what they have learned by rote, and they know no more, nine or ten of those with whom I converse, either of gospel salvation or that faith whereby alone we can be saved, than Chickalai or Tomachakai. Now what spirit is he of? Who had rather these poor creatures should perish for lack of knowledge than that they should be saved, even by the exhortations of Howell Harris, or an itinerant preacher... About this time I received a letter from the author of those reflections which I mentioned July 31st, an extract of which I have subjoined, quote, Reverend Sir, as I wrote the rules and considerations in number 25 of country common sense, with an eye to Mr. Whitfield and yourself and your opposers from a sincere desire to do some service to Christianity according to the imperfect notions I had at that time of the real merits of the cause, I at the same time resolved to take any opportunity that should offer for my better information, On this principle it was that I made one of your audience October 23rd at Bradford, and because I thought I could form the best judgment of you and your doctrines from your sermon, I resolved to hear that first, which was the reason that, although by accident, I was at the same house and walked two miles with you to the place you preached at. I spoke little or nothing to you. I must confess, sir, that the discourses you made that day, wherein you pressed your hearers in the closest manner— and with the authority of a true minister of the gospel, not to stop at faith only, but to add to it all virtues, and to show forth their faith by every kind of good works, convince me of the great wrong done you by a public report common in people's mouths that you preach faith without works. For that is the only ground of prejudice which any true Christian can have, and it is a sense in which your adversaries would take the words when they censored them. For that we are justified by faith only is the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of His apostles, and the doctrine of the Church of England. I am ashamed that after having lived twenty-nine years since my baptism into this faith, I should speak of it in a lame, unfaithful, I may say, false manner I have done in the paper above mentioned. What mere darkness is man when truth hideth her faith from him? Man is by nature a sinner, the child of the devil, under God's wrath and a state of damnation. The Son of God took pity on this our misery. He made Himself man. He made Himself sin for us. That is, He has borne the punishment of our sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. To receive this boundless mercy, this inestimable benefit, we must have faith in our benefactor and through Him and God. But then true faith is not a lifeless principle, as your adversaries seem to understand it. There And you mean quite another thing by faith. They mean a bare believing that Jesus is the Christ. You mean a living, growing, purifying principle, which is a root both of inward and outward holiness, both of purity and good works, without which no man can have faith, at least no other than a dead faith. This faith, sir, you explained in your sermon at Bradford, Sunday, October 28th, to near 10,000 people who all stood to hear you with awful silence and great attention. I have since reflected how much good the clergy might do if, instead of shunning, they would come to hear and converse with you, and in their churches and parishes would farther and forth their Catholic doctrines, which you preach and which I am glad to see have such a surprising good effect on a great number of souls. I think, indeed, too many clergymen are culpable in that they do not inform themselves better of Mr. Whitfield, yourself, and your doctrines from your own mouths. I am persuaded, if they did this with a Christian spirit, The differences between you would soon be at an end. Nay, I think those whose flocks resort so much to hear you ought to do it, out of their pastoral duty to them, that if you preach good doctrine they may edify them on the impression so visibly made by your sermons, or, if evil, they may reclaim them from error. I shall conclude this letter with putting you in mind in all sermons, writings, and practice nakedly to follow the naked Jesus. I mean to preach the pure doctrines of the gospel without any respect of persons or things. Many preachers, many reformers, many missionaries have fallen by not observing this, by not having continually in mind, whosoever shall break the least of these commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Tuesday, November 27th. I write, Mr. D., according to his request, a short account of what had been done in Kingswood and of our present undertaking there. The account was as follows, "'Few persons have lived long in the west of England "'who have not heard of the colliers of Kingswood, "'a people famous from the beginning hitherto, "'for neither fearing God nor regarding man, "'so ignorant of the things of God "'that they seem but one removed from the beast of perish, "'therefore utterly without desire of instruction, "'as well as without the means of it. "'Many last winter used tauntingly to say of Mr. Whitfield, "'If he will convert heathens, "'why does not he go to the colliers of Kingswood? "'In spring he did so.' When he was called away, others went into the highways and hedges to compel them to come in. And by the grace of God, their labor was not in vain. The scene has already changed. Kingwood does not now, as a year ago, resound with cursing and blasphemy. It is no more filled with drunkenness and uncleanness and the idle diversions that naturally lead thereto. It is no longer full of wars and fightings of clamor and bitterness of wrath and enviance. Peace and love are there. Great numbers of people are mild, gentle, and easy to be entreated. They do not cry, neither strive, and hardly is their voice heard in the streets, or indeed in their own wood, unless, when they are at their usual evening diversion, singing praise unto God their Savior, that their children, too, might know the things which make for their peace. It was sometimes since proposed to build a house in Kingswood, and after many foreseen and unforeseen difficulties in June last, the foundation was laid. The ground made choice of was, in the middle of the wood... Between the London and Bath Roads, not far from that called Two Mile Hill, about three measured miles from Bristol, here a large room was begun for the school, having four small rooms at either end, for the schoolmasters, and perhaps if it should please God, some poor children, to lodge in. Two persons are ready to teach, so soon as the house is fit to receive them, the shell of which is nearly finished, so that it is hoped the whole will be completed in spring or early in the summer. Wednesday, November 28th We left Tiverton, and the next day reached Bristol. On Friday, many of us joined in prayer for one that was grievously tormented. She raged more and more for about two hours, and then our Lord gave her rest. Five were in the same agony in the evening. I ordered them to be removed to the door, that their cries might neither drown my voice nor interrupt the attention of the congregation. But after sermon, they were brought into the room again, where a few of us continued in prayers to God, being very unwilling to go till we had an answer of peace, till nine the next morning. Before that time, three of them sang praise to God, and the others were eased, though not set at liberty. Tuesday, December 4th I was violently attacked by some who were exceedingly angry at those who cried out so being sure, they said. It was all a cheat, and that anyone might help crying out if he would. J.B. was one of those who were sure of this. About eight the next morning, while he was alone in his chamber at private prayer, so horrible a dread overwhelmed him that he began to cry out with all his might. All the family was alarmed. Several of them came running up to his chamber, but he cried out so much the more, till his breath was utterly spent. God then rebuked the adversary, and he is now less wise in his own conceit. 1740. Some remarkable instances of the power of the word and of prayer. Wednesday, March 5th. We came to Bristol. Here convictions sink deeper and deeper. Love and joy are more calm, even and steady. Wednesday the 12th. I found a little time, having been much importuned, to spend with a soldier at Bridewell who was under sentence of death. This I continued to do once a day, whereby there was also an opportunity of declaring the gospel of peace to several that were confined in the same place. Saturday the 29th. I think it was about this time that the soldier was executed, for some time I had visited him every day, but afterwards I was informed that the commanding officer had given strict orders. Neither Mr. Wesley nor any of his people should be admitted, for they were all atheists. But did that man die like an atheist? Let my last end be like his. Thursday, April 3rd. I went to the room weak and faint. The scriptures that came in course was, after the way that you call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. I know not whether God has been so with us from the beginning hitherto. He proclaimed, as it were, a general deliverance to the captives. The chain fell off. They arose and followed him. The cries of desire, joy, and love were on every side. Fear, sorrow, and doubt fled away. Verily, thou hast sent the gracious rain upon thine inheritance and refreshed it when it was weary. Friday, April 4. I was much comforted by Mr. T's sermon at All Saints, which was according to the truth of the gospel as well as by the affectionate seriousness wherewith he delivered the holy bread to a very large congregation. May the good Lord fill him with all the life of love and with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Wednesday, May 7th, I prayed with a poor helpless sinner who had been all his lifetime subject to bondage, but our Lord now proclaimed deliverance to the captives and he rejoiced with joy unspeakable. All the next day his mouth was filled with praise and on Friday he fell asleep. Friday, August 22nd, I was desired to pray with an old hardened sinner, supposed to be at the point of death. He knew not me, nor ever had heard me preach. I spoke much, but he opened not his mouth. But no sooner did I name the Savior of sinners, than he burst out to the, the Savior and sinners of deed. I know it, for he has saved me. He told me so on Sunday morning, and he said I should not die yet, till I had heard his com- children preach his gospel, and had told my old companions in sin that he is ready to save them too." End quote. 1741, Conversion of an Atheist, Comfortable Death of an Imminent Christian, Tuesday, April 7th. I dined with one who had been a professed atheist for upwards of twenty years, but coming some months since to make sport with the word of God, it cut him to the heart, and he could have no rest day nor night till the God whom he had denied spoke peace to his soul. Friday, July 31st, hearing that one of our sisters, Jane Muncy, was ill, I went to see her. She was one of the first woman bands at Fetter Lane. And when the controversy concerning the means of grace began, stood in the gap and contended earnestly for the ordinances once delivered to the saints nor could all the sophistry of those who are of all men living the wisest in their generation induce her either to deny the faith she had received or to use less plainness of speech or to be less zealous in her recommending and careful in practicing good works insomuch that many times when she had been employed in the labor of love till eight or nine in the evening she then sat down and wrought with her hands till twelve or one in the morning not that she wanted anything herself but that she might have to give to others for necessary uses